shining a beacon on the bazaar. Hi there, shipmates. You're listening to Kraken Cove Radio, the radio station that shines a beacon onto the bazaar. My name is Matt, and uh, I'm I'm all alone tonight, and uh, I'm sure some of you guys are too. Uh, Benny's not with me today because he's got a very very vicious eye infection. Uh, not too sure how he's done that. It's a bit of a mystery. I do have his medical reports with me today, and it seems like... What does it say here? Let's have a little look. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's got something in his eye. Um, semen. It seems he's got semen in his eye. Um, that's not good. It's not something we recommend here. Um, so, you know... Anytime that's happening, have a little bit of fun with a friend or by yourself. Um, uh, remember to wear goggles. Uh, I'm sure Benny w- would agree with me there. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, seeing as uh, I'm on my own today, I thought me and you could cuddle up and uh, just uh, go through some intimate stories. Um, nothing too intimate, nothing like uh, what Benny's been up to, um, but just some smooth casting. Um, so let's start off now just with a little bit of uh, music from uh, Freddie Noodles and his noodlers with Chicken Tikka G-String Blues. Take it away, Freddie. Uh, big thanks to uh, Freddie Noodles there, a little bit of an unusual arrangement, I'm sure you enjoyed it. So today we're going to start off with some proper casting, so let's have a little look, see what we've got. Um, today we're going to be starting off with uh, something a little bit strange, which is cropped up in East Yorkshire, which is a very strange place here, which is uh, where we are, we're at the Cove. And um, this is where the archaeologists have found a male warrior killed two or three times in a burial site near Pocklington. So what we have here is a story by Grace Witherden and Alex Grove, senior reporter for Live. The digging up of a suspected vampire skeleton has taken place in East Yorkshire after a completely unprecedented discovery by archaeologists. The third chariot burial ever found in Britain has been uncovered in the county and will be the focus of an episode of BBC 4's Digging for Britain. And that's digging for Britain, not dogging for Britain. I know this has been something I've come across very accidentally. Not in that way. Um, it's just in the laybys of East Yorkshire. You can uh, you can make easy mistakes, and uh, believe me, I'm paying for it. Quite a fine. But uh, in this episode of time, a team of archaeologists will find an elderly man, believed to be in his sixties or seventies, buried in a chariot alongside two ponies. The spectacular grave, which was uncovered near Pocklington, is the first chariot burial with animal skeletons to be discovered in the UK, and narrator Alice Roberts describes the find as something completely unprecedented. 
as part of the dig archaeologists also found a pair of 3rd century BC Iron Age graves which they believe may have been the result of a strange vampire slaying ritual. According to the Independent, the bodies are believed to have been individuals of high status and had some bizarre rituals performed on them. The first grave contained a male warrior believed to be aged between 17 and 25 and he may have been killed two or three times. Killed two or three times. Can you imagine how bizarre that is? An examination of the skeleton found his body had been pierced by nine spears after he was dead. This comprised five with iron tips and four with bone ones, with the warrior also found to have been bashed on the forehead. One explanation for the body being pierced by spears is that he may have died of natural causes and not in battle. The ritual of spearing his corpse might have allowed him the privilege of dying a warrior's death. An alternative theory is that the warrior may have been feared for being a suspected vampire. And in individuals who were thought to be vampires were neutralised through spearing. And this would explain why the skeleton was found with metal still in it. And the thinking there, of course, is that metal was extremely important and expensive at the time. It wasn't something you'd just leave in a, uh, in a dead body or anything like that. It was something you'd probably retrieve and use again and again and again as much as possible. And even if something was broken, like a spear or a sword, it had been fixed or re-smelted or something like that, you know. But, um, but yeah, very strange out there in uh, East Yorkshire. We're going to keep a close eye on that here at Kraken Cove Radio. Um, hopefully none of those vampires will come up from the dead and uh, attack the lighthouse because that would be absolutely terrifying and I'm on my own and the toilet is three stories down um, not, a, not a nice position to be in um, anyway uh, let's have a little bit of music now from the uh, Tony Fond connection with his hit Dem Fucking Gibbons <laughs> that was the uh, Tony Fond connection there. Great little track, I'm sure you remember it. Um, I often wonder to myself, whatever happened to them fucking Gibbons? But now we're going to look at a little story called The Bizarre Spontaneous Vanishing of James Tedford from a Moving Bus. And this is by Brent Swanser for Mysterious Universe. In the 1940s, 56-year-old James Tedford, also sometimes spelled as Tedford, was a war veteran residing in the small, quiet town of Fletchertown in Franklin, Vermont. He had a fairly quiet and content life with his much younger wife, 28-year-old Pearl Tedford, and to most they would have seemed to have been a normal, unassuming couple. But things would begin to get strange when World War II came blooming and Tedford went off for a second tour of duty. When he left, things between him and Pearl had been, by all accounts, good, with no known problems between the two so he would have had no reason to think he wouldn't be able to pick up his happy life where he had left off once he returned. However, this was not meant to be. This would mark the beginning of a spectacularly bizarre, spontaneous vanishing that happened on a moving vehicle in full view of many witnesses, and which has never been solved. The first vanishing was the wife. When Tedford returned, his wife seemed normal at first, but shortly after coming back home, he returned one day to find the house empty and Pearl nowhere to be seen, even though she was supposed to be there. 
The house was completely in order, and there was even a meal out that she had been preparing. So James just assumed she had stepped out for a moment and thought nothing of it at first. The late evening came and Pearl still had not arrived home, which was very unlike her, and Tedford began to worry. Speaking to neighbours and locals, he found that she had been seen that day on her way to an Amoco store in town, and that she had seemed completely normal, in good spirits, and not exhibiting any signs of distress or any problems. When she had still not returned by the following day, police were notified, but they could find no trace of her. The idea was that she had run off. But then, why had she been seen in completely normal spirits, and why hadn't she left a note behind, and yet had left a half-prepared meal? No one had a clue, and Pearl Tedford would never be seen again. The sudden vanishing of his beloved wife from his life left Tedford in utter shambles. He allegedly flew into a deep depression, withdrawing from social circles and becoming a miserable recluse, who was barely ever seen leaving his house and did not do much but sit alone and stare at the wall. He eventually moved into the soldier's retirement home in Bennington, Vermont in 1947, where he kept pretty much to himself and had no friends. The only people James Tedford had left were some relatives who lived in St Albans, Vermont, which was about an eight-hour bus ride away over Route 7 and through the rugged Green Mountain Wilderness area. It was a trip he took occasionally to visit them, and in December of 1949, he went to see them for a few days. It was a completely normal trip, and a bus ride he had taken many times before, so when he went to the bus station to take the journey back to his retirement home, there was no reason to think this time would be any different. Although Tedford would typically dour, his family and fellow passengers would later claim that he had not been acting any differently than usual or out of character in any way. Yet it seems that somewhere along this trip, James Tedford would evaporate into thin air. When Tedford did not arrive back at the retirement home as scheduled, there were efforts made to find out where he had gone. Both bus personnel and the 15 passengers who had been on the same bus told authorities that Tedford had gotten onto the bus, and this was confirmed by his luggage, cash, and all of his belongings left stowed and abandoned on the bus, as well as an open bus timetable on his seat. According to witnesses, Tedford had last been seen sleeping soundly in his seat, but he was so nondescript that no one had really paid him much attention until the bus reached its destination and he simply wasn't there anymore. It was quite anomalous, as the bus had made no stops along the way, there was seemingly no way for him to get off a moving bus without anyone noticing, and even if he could have somehow jumped from the bus, it had been snowing heavily at the time, so why would he have tried such a stunt? How had he managed to just vanish, and why had all his luggage been left behind? How could he have so completely vanished in full view of a crowded bus of people with so many potential witnesses? We may never know, and Tedford has never been heard from again. Rather ominously, in later years, the mysterious vanishing of James Tedford had been linked to several other bizarre vanishings in the same region. It was first proposed by New England author, historian and folklorist Joseph A. Citro that Tedford's vanishing seems to tie in with a series of other weird and unexplained disappearances that occurred between the years of 1945 and 1950, during which several seemingly unconnected people vanished around the Bennington region of southwestern Vermont. 
Some of these occurred before Tedford's disappearance. One of them was an experienced hunter named Middy Rivers, who had vanished into thin air in 1945 after rounding a bend ahead of his group and simply blinking out of existence within moments, leaving behind a single rifle casing by a stream and no further traces. The following year, a woman named Paula Weldon went on a hike along the trail in the same area and passed a couple of other hikers who say she similarly rounded a bend and that when they came around the corner seconds later, she was gone without a trace. Despite extensive searches, Paula Weldon was never seen again. In the years after Tedford's vanishing, there was the 1950 vanishing of eight-year-old Paul Jefferson, who was left in his mother's truck momentarily as she ran an errand, and when she came back, he was gone. A spooky detail that would come out is that the tracker dog supposedly followed Jefferson's sense to the same area where Paula Weldon had disappeared four years earlier. In October of that same year, 53-year-old Frieda Langer was camping in the area and took a hike with her cousin, Herb Elsner. At some point, she slipped and fell into a stream and told Elsner that she would go back, change her clothes and be right back. She never did come back, and it seems she never reached the campsite because all of her clothes were still there. A massive search ensued without finding a single trace of the missing woman, and then, on May the 12th, 1951, her skeletal remains were found under some mysterious circumstances. Not only was she found well off the trail that she had been on, but the remains were discovered in an area that had been completely and meticulously searched several times. A strange death remains a mystery. It's hard to know whether any of these cases are connected, or if they have any relation to Tedford's disappearance, but it is rather eerie. Citro called the area the Bennington Triangle, which he claims is an ill-defined zone that is centred on Glastonbury Mountain. Not the Glastonbury in England, but of course in the, the one in America. And radiates outwards into the wilderness area and communities around it, including Bennington. He's gone on to write several books mentioning the Bennington Triangle, with the area also being home to all manner of ghostly phenomena, Bigfoot-like creatures and UFOs. And whether these disappearances are supernatural in any way or not, it is all rather spooky at the very least. Is any of this connected, and if so, how? Is there some mysterious force pervading the landscape here, perhaps hungry for victims, or is this all just coincidence? Whether any of it is connected or not, James Tedford did get on that bus to never get off and it has remained one of the more astonishingly weird and puzzling disappearances of modern times. Well, there we have it. Whatever happened to James Tedford, whatever happened to all those other missing people, disappeared into the ether? Just ran away? Or were they abducted in some way? Who knows? But in the meantime, while we all wonder about that, let's have a little bit of music here at... Uh, Radio Kraken Cove, and listen to the Chris Cheesemonger Trio with Corner Bath and Gold Taps.
<laughs> Thanks there to Chris Cheesemonger. What a wonderful little uh, little tune that was. And if any tune could ever epitomise a corner bath and gold taps, then I'm sure that's it. If you've got anything you'd like to say to uh, Crack and Cove Radio, the uh, podcast, of course, which is usually done by uh, Matt and Benny. That's me, Matt, not Benny. Benny's not here. He's got the uh, very, very nasty eye infection caused by his own... Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, you can contact us at email at crackandcovepodcast at gmail.com or at Twitter at crackandcove or Instagram at crackandcovepod. And if you want to get in touch on Facebook, then uh, just type crackandcove in there and you'll get in touch to uh, either me or Benny. Actually, you won't be getting in touch with Benny because he's blind. Um, so it will be me. I'll be talking to you there. But any questions you've got, um, just get through and we'll see what we can do. But in the meantime, let's uh, cast our light out from the wonderful radio station up here at Kraken Cove uh, Radio and uh, see what we can see. We're going to go cast it out this time out towards Germany. But not just Germany. We're going to go see what the Sri Lankans have had to do in, uh, in Germany. And this is a story from the BBC. And this story is that the Sri Lankan handball team vanishes. The German authorities say they are puzzled by the disappearance of the entire national handball team from Sri Lanka. German sports exchange programme organiser Dietmar Döring said, We initially thought the team had got lost in the nearby woods while jogging. But he said a note had been found saying the 23-strong team had gone to France. We know they crossed into Italy. Mr. Doring said. They even left a dirty laundry, he added. Mr. Doring told Priathlinyanj of the BBC Sinhala service the organisers were feeling extremely let down by the incident. This will be the last time we will be doing this. I am not planning to invite any more teams from Sri Lanka, he said. The entire team of 23 men, including the coach and the manager, had taken off. The handball team was taking part in a programme in which teams from both countries visited each other for friendly games. The sports ministry in Sri Lanka said the trip was not authorised. Handball is a sport very rarely played in Sri Lanka, and the formation of a national team was a mystery, according to the ministry spokesman. The performance of the team had been poor throughout the tournament. Mr During said that until now, the exchange programme had been successful. Different sports teams from Sri Lanka have been taking part in the project for nearly 15 years, he said. Nothing was ever seen again of the Sri Lankan team. So there we have it. We have a a team from Sri Lanka playing a sport that they're not used to. Uh, It's not, um, doesn't look like it's been authorised in any way, shape or form by the uh, sports ministry of Sri Lanka. And they've done a runner. Um, And all I can say is good luck to them. Get yourselves off there. uh, Have a bit of fun. I hope no harm's come to them or anything like that. In the woods of Germany, it's a dangerous place. You can get get eaten by lynx, wolves, bears, or Germans. Um, Anyway, on that little little note, uh, let's have a little bit of music now from... uh, Let's have something by uh, Westy Westerman. And he's playing Bamboozled in the Zoo. My name is Richard Daniels. 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 And I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion 
is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country, where hauntings, curses, cryptids and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re-release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember the wolves of weird are loose. And who doesn't love a nice little bit of a Westy Westman there? And he's a little hit there, a bamboozled in the zoo. Um, yeah, it's a it's a great little piece. Um, I'm sure you enjoyed it. So here we are. Welcome again to uh, to Crack and Cove Radio. And today we're going to do a little bit of a little bit of news. Uh, we like a little bit of news here at Crack and Cove Radio. But of course, we're not going to do it the same way that normal people do news. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to be taking mainly from uh, a genuine publication. This is the Leeds Mercury and General Advertiser, and we're going to go back to about 1795, that kind of time onwards. So, what we've got are a few little snippets that would just um, tickle the fancy of our editors here, uh, as in me. And so we're going to start on 14th of March, 1795. A man named Gosling is committed to Norwich Jail for stealing ducks from Mrs. Drake. Cracking little pun there, like that. Just a nice little play there. Duck Drake, that kind of thing. Gosling, all that sort of malarkey. On the 17th of October, 1795. Died on Wednesday night. Mr. Michael Hemmings, apothecary in Bath. His death was occasioned by eating a large quantity of nuts the preceding day. Doesn't say whose nuts, what kind of nuts, anything like that, but he's uh, he's dead, passed on, um, 1795. Now we go back to the Leeds Mercury for the 25th of January, 1812. The headline is Runaway Apprentice. Whereas Charles Taylor, apprentice to Thomas Knowles, a shoemaker of Little Horton near Bradford, did leave his master's service on the 31st of December last. The said Charles Taylor is 19 years of age, 5 feet 9 inches high, light complexion, and black hair, had on when he absconded a red velveteen coat, red shag waistcoat, and ribbed cord breeches. Whoever will apprehend the said apprentice and give information to the said Thomas Knowles shall be handsomely rewarded. So there we've got it, we've got a chap there, he's managed to misplace an apprentice. I don't know where he's lost him, can't find him anymore, but if you've seen an apprentice in the region of Bradford, Little Horton, around 1812, please get in touch and we shall shall pass that reward on to you. Let's have a little move forward now to Leeds Mercury, the 1st of February 1812. And there's a little notice here, and it says, uh, Take notice. Steel traps and spring guns are set in the grounds and plantations of Milnerfield and Stubbing House in the parish of Bingley, in the west riding of the county of York, belonging to the Reverend W. Penny. And whoever shall be found trespassing will be prosecuted. Now, not just prosecuted, to be fair, and by the sound of that, he sounds like will be found dead, because spring guns and steel traps aren't going to tickle, are they? So the Reverend W. Penny, obviously a man of God there, being very generous with his time and his, his land, 
is going to shoot you or trap you. Um, so take care when you're out a little walk, a little ramble, something like that. Be careful because you you could die. So, but that's back in 1812. So when you're time traveling, uh, I'd stick around. What 1811, something like that, because he hasn't yet set those traps. Moving on to the 14th of January 1815. Caution against putting pins and needles in the mouth. Mrs. Randall, wife of Mr. Randall, hairdresser in Nottingham, has, during six years, felt an extraordinary sensation in one of her arms, which at length had the effect of reducing the substance of the arm and of contracting the muscles of the hand. This week the circumstance underwent a surgical investigation by Mr. Attenborough when he extracted a common sewing needle from the upper part of her arm, about one and a half inches long. This, it is concluded, could not find admission into the part, as Mrs. R had no knowledge of her arm having received any external injuries, except by means of the thorax, as was the case with the incautious and much enduring Kate Hodson of that town in the year 1783. So they're remembering back then to a mere, what was that, about 30, 32 years before. It had happened previously that somehow somebody's accidentally followed, swallowed a needle there in, in 1815 and in 1783. So you people there with needles in your mouth, take them out, pop them down, because let's face it, you could end up having them travel all through your bloodstream and into your arm. Now we move to 28th of January 1815. This is a nice little story of a, a man called Spencer, who was sentenced to be transported at our last Michaelmas sessions for robbing his employers, Messrs. Reynard and Gilpin of that town. And um, just a little bit of an update on how he's doing, Mr. Spencer. Uh, we understand he died on board the Hulks a few days ago. So he's done a bit of robbing, he's been transported, and he's died on a ship. So, uh, there you go. That's that tidied up, sorted out. And 6th of May, 1815. Died last week at Tranau, Cornwall, aged 60, in consequence of an epileptic fit. A person commonly known by the appellation of Giant Chilcot. He was 6 feet 4 inches high, measured around the breast 6 feet 9 inches, and weighed about 460 pounds. He was almost constantly smoking. The stem of the pipe he used was two inches long, and he consumed three pounds of tobacco weekly. And one of his stockings held six gallons of wheat. Now, I don't know how you test that. I mean, do you look around and suddenly find a guy there putting wheat in your socks? Who knows? That's a hell of a lot of tobacco to be smoking as well. He must have stank. He must have stank the old uh, giant Chilcot. Six feet four, not particularly high. Um, but of that era, 1815, uh, people weren't particularly high, I don't suppose. But he was wide, wasn't he? Wide chap. So he was, he was basically six feet nine inches round. Around the breast. So that's around the chest. Six feet nine round. So he's wider than he was uh, high. Um, for 60 pounds, he liked a dinner in a time when people were starving. So... God knows what the uh, background of Giant Chilcot was, but, and whoever was feeding him uh, want to be ashamed for themselves. Anyway, um, let's have a little move on here. And this is on the uh, 29th of July, 1815. Died on the 14th of that month at Kippingdale, Lincolnshire, aged 16. Anne Hardy, daughter of Thomas and Sarah Hardy. Not that Thomas Hardy. 
Uh, this young woman had attained the extraordinary height of seven feet. Seven feet and two inches. Seven foot two, this young lady, when she died. Poor thing. Don't know what that was about. Don't know what she died of. Um, the houses of those times, probably just banging her head on a doorway. Another giant who died of that era was a very famous one in the local area. Is uh, in Market Wheaton, Mr. Bradley. Yorkshire giant, known as Giant Bradley. And when he died, they say he measured nine foot in length and with three feet across the shoulders. A very, very true giant. I mean, giant, they say they're probably bigger than uh, Robert Pershing Wadlow, eight foot 11, 39 stone. So he was the biggest ever recorded, eight foot 11. And, but the saying, perhaps Giant Bradley might have been bigger. Who knows? We're not ones to dig him up and measure him, are we? So, but they say he's tall. Pretty cool character who died as well on that time, 15th of July, 1820. Um, Joseph Boys of Bradford, common carrier. Don't know what a common carrier is, probably just looked things around. He was age 63. But what I like here is he was better known by the name of Joe, the Midnight Carrier. Was he a DJ? That kind of thing. Sounds pretty cool. On 28th of October, 1820, Mrs. Milne of Hardcastle, near Pateley, aged, died aged 103. And it's remarkable that from the age of 10 years old, just 10 years old, until she reached the advanced age of 101, she continued her, her occupation. And what's more amazing is her job was working lead ore. She was smelting. Smelting lead from the age of 10 till 101, 91 years of smelting lead. Her lungs, I want a glimpse at them. I'd like a little look at those lungs. Absolutely knackered, I'm sure of it. But there you go, what a story. Sarah Milner, 91 years of smelting lead. And 5th of March, 1825, died a few days ago. Mrs. Margaret Braithwaite of Kendall, one of the Society of Friends and Proprietors of the Medicine called the Black Drop. Now, if you've ever wondered what the Black Drop is, the Black Drop was actually a 19th century dark medicine made of opium, vinegar, spices, often with sugar, and it was sometimes called Black Drops, and they were well known in uh, Great Britain and North America. It was like a Kendall recipe. And one recipe for black drop began, macerate the opium and nutmeg in the diluted acetic acid for seven days, stirring frequently. And apparently uh, it was very popular with the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And um, at first Coleridge welcomed the relief from pain provided by Kendall Black Drop, but was later uh, to say that his eyes had been opened to the true nature of the habit, into which I had been ignorantly deluded by the seeming magic effects of opium. And in 1823, Byron referred to it in his poem Don Juan, For Cupid's cup with the first draught intoxicates apace, a quintessential laudanum or black drop, which makes one drunk at once. And we've not got any uh, black drop here at Dragon Cove Radio. Um, every now and again, I think we'd quite like some because it can get a little bit tedious. So something a little bit sort of to spice it up might be quite nice. But I think we're going to dodge the black drop there. And uh, Mrs. Margaret Braithwaite of Kendall, um, I think, to be honest, I think she's a bit of a bad lot, really. Um, she probably got a lot of people hooked. I'm sure it caused a lot of uh, people who were a lot of pain relief for people. But. Um, Let's leave it at that. Let's let's leave Black Drop where it did, deserves to be, uh, in the region of 1825. 
In the 17th of December 1825, uh, married on Thursday week at Bury, Mrs. James Pickles to Miss Christiana Clough. The parties are followers of Joanna Southcote. The bridegroom, a man of about middle age, had a fine long bushy beard, rendered more venerable by its silvery hue. In the party were two other persons whose flowing beards gave to the bridal group a truly patriarchal appearance. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, Joanne uh, Southcote, um, born 1750, uh, died 27th of December 1814, with a self-described religious prophetess from Devon. And the South Cotian movement continued in various forms after her death. She, her early life was spent at, uh, in a hamlet of Tailford. And she did dairy work as a girl, and after the death of her mother, Hannah, she went into service, first as a shop girl in Honiton, then for a considerable time as a domestic servant in Exeter. And she was eventually dismissed because a footman, whose attentions she rejected, claimed she was growing mad. And she's originally of the Church of England, and she joined the Wesleyans in about 1792. But she became persuaded that she had supernatural gifts, and wrote and dictated prophecies in rhyme. Then she announced herself as the woman of the apocalypse, and spoke of the prophetic passage of the Revelation. And Southcott came to London at the request of William Sharp, an engraver, and she began selling paper seals of the Lord, at prices varying from 12 shillings to a guinea. And the seals were supposed to ensure holders' place among the 144,000 people ostensibly elected to eternal life. So when there was the great trump, I believe it's called, which is not anything that you think it is, but when the great hot trumpet blows and the dead rise from the graves, apparently only 144,000 people are allowed to do it. So if you think of all the people that have been alive, or how many people are alive now, and you're only guaranteed 144,000 people. There's several billion people on Earth as we speak. Several pe billion people have already died. What's the chances? And apparently the chances are, if you actually bought a little piece of paper called A Seal of Our Lord from William Sharp, you're one of them. And it only costs you either a shilling or a guinea. And that would apparently, apparently guarantee you eternal life. Um, not sure how true that is, but... Um, there you have it. And it also turns out that um, uh, she she claimed that when she was about the age of, uh, I think she was about the age of 64, she claimed she was pregnant and she was about to deliver the, to the world a new messiah, the Shiloh of Genesis, or Shiloh of Genesis. And um, everybody's very excited about this and they thought there was going to be a set date for her to give birth. And um, about 100,000 people got together all ready for, the, uh, for her to give birth. And, um, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Um, it turns out she had something rather nasty wrong with her, and she died, 27th of December, 1814. But the followers um, refused to believe she was dead. Uh, they thought she was alive, so they retained her body for some time in the belief that she would be raised from the dead. And they uh, agreed to bury her when she started to stink to high heaven. And she was buried at the Chapel of Ease at St. John's Wood in 1815. So um, that's only a few weeks later, but I'm sure by then she was getting quite high. And apparently she left sort of out. She left a sealed box containing prophecies known as Joanne Southcote's box. Great name there, great name. And um, let's say no more about that. And the instructions to open it only at a time of national crisis in the presence of all 24 current bishops of the Church of England. So that's quite a uh, quite a demand there, I think. And they were to spend a fixed period before studying her prophecies. And attempts were made to persuade the Episcopate to open it at the Crimean War, because people thought that was about the end of the world and a real time of crisis. And again in the First World War. 
but in 1927 the psychic researcher Harry Price claimed to have come into possession of the box and arranged to have it opened in the presence of one reluctant prelate, the suffragan Bishop of Grantham, and it was found to contain only a few oddments, unimportant payments, uh, a lottery ticket and a horse pistol. Um, so really that's a bit of a disappointment, even though the uh, the South Cottian followers, who there's still some about, reckoned that they were going to open the box, the true box, at another time, but that's never happened. So let's just say now, I don't know who's got the box at the moment, but we could do with it opening at any time soon. And for the last little bit of news here from Kraken Cove, um, we're going to go a little bit forward in the future now to uh, 4th of September 1830. It's the story about the, uh, just a little bit of news there, just about a uh, son, uh, Charles, a lad called Charles, the only son of the late Mr. Charles Sanderson of York. And uh, just a bit of news of what happened to him. And he died on the 13th of May at Bonny on the coast of Africa in the brig Matilda. And it was struck by lightning and exploded. So there's a lovely little bit of news for you. Um, that's from the past news from the past, which I always find a little bit more comforting than news from nowadays. So, what we need to do now is let's have a little bit of music uh, from uh, Big Jimmy Nickersmith with Big Nicker Blues. And a big thanks to Big Jimmy Nickersmith there, and he's, uh, I hope he gets over those Big Nicker Blues, because let's face it, listeners, uh, we've all had them, either wearing them or trying to get them off. But now let's have a little look now to uh, 1900, going to stay firmly in the past, and um, let's have a little story from Perrot Phillips in his um, his little thing uh, that he, he, he popped in the episodes of Unexplained. On the evening the 28th of July 1900, King Umberto I of Italy dined with his aide in a restaurant in Monza, where he was due to attend an athletics meeting the next day. With astonishment, he noticed that the proprietor looked exactly like him, and speaking to him, he discovered that there were other similarities. The restaurateur was also called Umberto. Like the king, he had been born in Turin, and on the same day. And he had married a girl called Margarita on the day the king had married his queen, Margarita. And he had opened his restaurant on the day that Umberto I was crowned King of Italy. The King was intrigued and invited his double to attend the athletics meeting with him. The next day at the stadium, the King's aide informed him that the restaurateur had died that morning in a mysterious shooting accident. And even as the King expressed his regret, he himself was shot dead by an anarchist in the crowd. And on that strange note, let's have a little bit of music from the Barry Titsqueeze Orchestra, playing his own version of the classic standard, suspended sentence, but feeling £250 fine. Wonderful little standard there from the uh, Barry Titsqueeze Orchestra. Absolutely excellent stuff, first-rate music, really, really good stuff. Um, I'm sure you enjoyed it as much as I did, you know? And I hope you're feeling £250 fine too. Now let's take a little glance at the man from nowhere. No, no, not Benny. He's not nowhere. He doesn't know where he is because he can't see at the moment. But so I'm sure you're all sending all your love for Benny. Um, big love to you out there, Benny boy. Um, but no, we're going to take a little glimpse 
a strange character called the Count of Saint-Germain. And this is a story from, uh, also from the Unexplained uh, magazine. This is a compilation of their, uh, their magazines. Put in a lovely little book that I came across on eBay. And it was from, this is a piece by Frank Smith. Towards the end of the year 1745, London was gripped by spy fever. It was the year in which the young pretender, Prince Charles Edward Stuart, had staged his Jacobite rebellion in an attempt to regain the British throne for his father. Although the Jacobite cause had been defeated at the Battle of Culloden in April, it was feared that Jacobite plotters and their French sympathisers might be hiding in London. Foreigners, particularly Frenchmen, were prime suspects. One such man was arrested in November and accused of having pro-Stuart letters in his possession. He indignantly claimed that the correspondence had been planted on him, and somewhat surprisingly, he was believed and released. Commenting on the case in a letter to Sir Horace Mann dated 9th of December, Horace Walpole wrote, The other day they seized an odd man who goes by the name of Count Saint-Germain. He has been here these two years and will not tell who he is or whence, but professes that he does not go by his right name. He sings and plays the violin wonderfully, and he is mad and not very sensible. Walpole's comment sheds an tantalising authentic light on one of the strangest characters of 18th century high society, a man described by Count Warnstead as the completest charlatan, fool, rattlepate, windbag and swindler, and by his last patron, Prince Charles of Hesse-Cassel, as perhaps one of the greatest sages who ever lived. The first of the scant historical records of Count Saint-Germain dates from about 1740, when he began to move in fashionable Viennese circles. A handsome man who appeared to be in his thirties. His clothes attracted attention in those days of brightly coloured silks and satins, for he habitually wore black, relieved only by a crisp white linen at neck and wrists. The somberness of his clothes, however, was brilliantly set off by a dazzle of diamonds on his fingers, his fob, his snuff box, and his shoe buckles. According to later accounts, he also carried handfuls of loose diamonds in his pockets in lieu of money. In Vienna, he met Count Zabord and Lobkowitz, contemporary leaders of fashion, and through them, the ailing French Marshal de Belle Isle, who had been taken seriously ill while campaigning in Germany. The nature of his illness is not recorded, but according to the Marshal, it was Count Saint-Germain who cured it, and in gratitude he took him to France and set him up with apartments and a well-equipped laboratory. The bare bones of the Count's life after his arrival in Paris are well documented, but it is a long-vanished detail that provides the lasting mystery. The legend begins shortly after the Count's arrival in Paris. One evening, according to the pseudonymous Countess de B, in her memoirs Chronique de Loyal de Booth, the Count had attended a soiree given by the aged Countess von, Gr von Georgie, whose late husband had been ambassador to Venice in the 1670s. Hearing the Count announced, the Countess said she recalled the name from her days in Venice. Had the Count's father perhaps been there at that time? No, replied the Count, but he had been, and well remembered the Countess as a beautiful young girl. 
Impossible, replied the Countess. The man she had known then was 45 at least, roughly the same age as he himself was now. Madame, said the Count, smiling, I am very old. But then you must be nearly 100 years old, claimed the Countess. Oh, that's not possible, the Count replied, and recounted some details that convinced the Countess, who exclaimed, I am already convinced. You are a most extraordinary man, a devil. For pity's sake, exclaimed the Count in a thundering voice. No such names. He appeared to be seized with a cramp-like trembling in every limb and left the room immediately. Many such stories circulated and were believed in fashionable French circles during the days of the Count's early fame. He hinted, for instance, that he had known the Holy Family intimately, and he'd been present at the marriage feast at Cana, and had always known that Christ would come to a bad end. He'd been particularly fond of Anne, the mother of the Virgin Mary, and had personally proposed her canonization at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. In Paris, the Count soon charmed the jaded Louis XV and his mistress, Madame de Pompadour. The truth about his two years' stay in England before his arrest in 1745 may never be known, but he could well have been engaged on a secret mission. On his return to France, he carried out several delicate political errands for the king. In 1760, Louis sent Count Saint-Germain to The Hague as his own personal representative, ostensibly to arrange a loan with Austria to help finance the Seven Years' War against England. And while in Holland, the Count fell out with his erstwhile friend Casanova, also a diplomat at The Hague, who tried hard but unsuccessfully to discredit him in public. But Saint-Germain also made a more powerful enemy. The Duc de Choiseul, Louis' foreign minister, discovered that the Count had been putting out feelers with a view to arranging a peace between England and France. Somehow the Duke convinced Louis that Count Saint-Germain had betrayed him, and the Count was forced to flee, first back to England and then to Holland. For two or three years he lived in Holland under the name Count Sermont, and set about raising money to build laboratories in which he made paint and dyes and tried to perfect the techniques of alchemy, the ennoblement of metals. He seems to have been successful, for records show that he disappeared from Holland with 100,000 guilders, only to turn up in Belgium, this time calling himself the Marquis de Montferrat. Here, in Tournai, he set up another laboratory before vanishing again. Over the next few years, the Count's activities continued to come from various parts of Europe. In 1768, he appeared in Russia in the court of Catherine the Great. Turkey had just declared war on Russia, and it seems that his power as a diplomat and as an insider in French politics stood him in good stead, for before long he was advising Count Alexei Orlov, head of the Russian Imperial Forces. As a reward, he was made a high-ranking officer in the Russian army, this time choosing an ironic English alias, General Weldon. At this point, he could have settled down in Russia to lead an honourable, profitable life, after the defeat of the Turks at the Battle of Chesme in 1770, he chose to go travelling again. In 1774, he turned up in Nuremberg seeking funds from Charles Alexander, Margrave of Brandenburg, to set, 
to set up another laboratory. This time he claimed to be Prince Rakoxi, one of three brothers from Transylvania. At first, the Margrave was impressed, particularly when Count Orlov visited Nuremberg on state visit and embraced the prince warmly. But on checking, the Margrave found that all three Rakoxis were definitely dead and that the prince was in fact Count Saint-Germain. The Count made no attempt to deny these charges but felt it prudent to move on and did so in 1776. The Duc de Choiseul claimed that Saint-Germain had worked as a double agent for Frederick the Great during his period at the French court. And if this were so, his old master preferred to forget the connection, for a letter from Count Saint-Germain to Frederick begging for patronage was ignored. Undaunted, the Count went to Leipzig and presented himself before Prince Frederick Augustus of Brunswick, claiming to be a Freemason of the fourth grade. Now this was a bold move, for Frederick Augustus was Grand Master of the Prussian Masonic Lodges. And unaccountably, it was a move that went wrong. If he was a confidence trickster, Count Saint-Germain in his prime had few equals at the game. His background stories generally stood up to close scrutiny. This time, however, they were lame. The Prince declared he was not a Mason, while the Count feebly replied that he was had forgotten all the secret signs. In 1779, Count Saint-Germain came to his last known resting place at Eckenford in Schleswig, Germany. He was an old man, probably in his late 60s, although typically he claimed to be much older. Some of his surface charm had gone and at first he failed to make much impression on Prince Charles of Hesse-Kassel, but soon, like his predecessors, the prince was won over. And by this time, Saint-Germain, who by all accounts had previously paid at least lip service to the Catholic Church, was openly mystical in his thinking. And he told Prince Charles, Be the torch of the world. If your light is that only of a planet, you will be as nothing in the sight of God. I reserve for you a splendour, of which the solar glory is a shadow. You shall guide the course of the stars, and those who rule empires shall be guided by you. Parish records show that on 27th of February 1784, Count Saint-Germain died at Prince Charles's home in Eckenford. He was buried locally, and his last patron erected a tombstone bearing the words, He who called himself Comte de Saint-Germain, and well done, of whom there is no other information, has been buried in this church. But was the Count dead? There is the evidence that he appeared to a number of people over the years from 1784 to 1820, and some occultists believe he is still alive. The mystery has lived on and deepened in the two centuries since his supposed death. Now it's easily studied Count Saint-Germain and other stories and other things that went on with him and he's supposed to have appeared in many different places. He's supposed to have gone down to New Orleans, these areas where the Irish coast was meant to have washed up and seen, seen many adventures. He has been, stories of well, Count Saint-Germain has been seen all over the world in one guise or another. And many people say that they never saw him eat but only drink from liquids he brought himself. So there's many, many uh, theories that he might actually have been a vampire, a bloodsucker. But who knows? That's one of the secrets of a Saint-Germain. But um, 
I'm sure that wasn't actually Count Saint Germain who was buried there in that grave. I think the tombstone was there to put the put everyone off the scent. And he lives now amongst us, probably sort of um, running Apple or, uh, or Facebook or something like that now. But anyway, that's uh, that's the last of the uh, little stories and things we're going to have from uh, Crack and Cove Radio. Um, hopefully, the next time you better tune in, it'll be with it'll be with Benny. Uh, hopefully, his eyesight's all sorted out. Um, he hasn't wanked himself silly. Um, but yeah, all it remains now is for me to say it's a big goodbye from Matt. And let's have a little bit more music now from uh, Gideon Whimsy, supported by his band Slippery Fingers, playing the jazz standard. If it itches, scratch it. I'll get some cream. Good night, guys. There are three ways you may contact Kraken Cove. Either by email at Podcast at gmail.com on Twitter at Kraken Cove or Instagram at Kraken Cove Pod. Ha ha!